Welcome to the Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ryan C.T. DeLapp about addressing racial stress through evidence-based skills and his reach-up model. Dr. DeLapp is an attending psychologist and assistant professor at the Montefiore Health System of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York and will be transitioning soon to a group private practice called the Ross Center. Recently, he presented at the National Practice Conference in 2022 that was held in Washington, D.C. about the mental health needs of children he sees as a health service psychologist. And you can read more about his treatment approach in the Journal of Health Service Psychology, where he published an article in the 2022 November issue. Ryan, thank you so much for being here with us today, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Great. Well, yeah, thank you so much. We have been talking about having this episode for a while now. Both of us were at the National Practice Conference, which audience members, if you have not been to this conference, it was a blast. I met so many great people, Ryan included. And I I just got to say, I learned and learned and learned throughout that time. There were incredible speakers and things that I just haven't necessarily even been exposed to at other conferences before. And I also walked away with a ton of continuing education. So a little plug for the National Practice Conference next year, but it was more importantly, fantastic to hear your talk and your experience and treatment process when working with youth of color. So I want to talk a little bit more about your work and race-related stress and this reach-up model throughout our podcast episode today. But I want to start with that really big picture. Tell us about this, this concept of race-related stress and how this is impacting those you serve. Yeah, so I'll start off just like I start with any youth, right? Uh, youth love acronyms, youth love like things that are familiar. So I, I use this beat, beat model, body sensations, emotions, actions, and thoughts. And I think really what when you try to understand racial stress, um, it's understanding that people of color have a different beat sometimes that they experience whenever they go through their day-to-day -day experiences, whether that's body sensations, you know, or, or anxiety or anger that they kind of experience uniquely because of who they are and how they present and how they anticipate that people will treat them. And then it's also the actions, right? It's the impulses that you get and you have to like think through like, oh, do I want to say that? Or do I do that? So it's just like, this, this demand on your kind of cognitive resources. And then lastly, it's the thoughts, it's the vigilance, mm -hmm. it's the looking for who can I trust, who do I think could perpetuate some form of racial stress and who cannot. It's, it's, a, it's a conglomerate of all of those things. And I think the BEAT acronym really encompasses it well. And, and really it's something that many people of color experience. It's not something that absolutely means you have a mental health concern. Sure. It just means that sometimes that stress can make some of the mental health concerns more intense um, for people of color when they come to our spaces. Mm -hmm. And Ryan, even as you begin talking about the subject, I'm kind of thinking about, okay, what comes first? The, mm -hmm. the, the racism and the race-related stress that may impact youth of color or the mental health concerns or, or how are these things related, especially mm -hmm. when they come into your office? Are we saying, hey, the the, the mental health diagnosis or that kind of diagnostic lens that we hold as psychologists is, is first the primary presenting concern? Or are we talking about race-related stress as the second? Do numbers even matter? Like, how does this, how do you see this? 
Right. That's a great question. I'd say it's completely individualized. I know uh, one of the great lessons that I've had in doing this work is there's no two individuals can really be treated in the same exact way because mm -hmm. the, the, the lived experiences, how they understand themselves, how they understand their racial identity, especially at younger ages, um, how their families have talked to them about themselves, all of that can influence how they are experiencing racial-related stress. And so I really encourage myself and other clinicians to think about this dynamic nature of how individuals are interacting with the world around them and then how that then interacts with their sense of self. And so I think it really depends. I think there are some individuals who, you know, kind of have early onset symptoms of psychiatric concerns. And then by way of going through life and continuing to develop as a racial individual, they also experience racial stress and that can sometimes intensify those symptoms. And for others, there are exposure to race related stresses that happen a lot over time. And as those experiences manifest more and more, it can kind of crystallize into what we would label it as, as a diagnostic experience. And then mm -hmm. there are some experienced people who encounter race related stress and don't develop psychiatric conditions. So it can run the gamut. And I think it's important for clinicians to have a way of acknowledging that spectrum of experience. Mm -hmm. Ryan, you've worked in what sounds like just based on getting to know you a little bit, some more medical or hospital-based care. Mm -hmm. Stereotype I have, and you got to help me understand this too, or maybe it's just a generalization, is like in those contexts, we tend to be more diagnostic, oh, if absolutely. nothing else, because we're billing insurance or we're, oh, yeah. we're having to, to use those labels. So how does that kind of play? Does it play attention when we're thinking about the spectrum that I'm hearing oh. and understandably is pretty wide? Oh, Sam, you you highlighted something really, really important there. And that's, you know, when we have families coming into our, our clinics, right, we definitely have a diagnostic system and a model and a, and a pressure to be able to label their experience in a way that we can bill and that we can, you know, complete our treatment plans and all other forms of documentation. And I think sometimes that that pace and that that urgency and that those requirements can eclipse our ability to really pause and make sense of a person's experience beyond the label. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the things that I've run into at times is is having to slow down mm -hmm. and having to, you know, really communicate and say, you know, I'm doing my best to understand this person's experience. And yes, I'm trying to check off some of the systemic requirements, but at the same time, how am I also internally checking my own kind of assessment and conceptualization framework to say, have I really tried to conceptualize the full person? And sometimes race and ethnicity and, and, and systemic stressors get left out of that conceptualization because we're so fast and trying to move through uh, our demands um, as providers in these systems. And Ryan, uh, you know, I'm conscious that as a white person, my identity may impact when I bring up the topic of like, hey, you know, how has racism or race-related stress impacted your life, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm also curious to, to hear more about what happens next in, in mm -hmm. your experience. What happens next after that question's asked or when you open that door to a conversation, mm -hmm. hey, maybe the the adolescents you've been working with haven't necessarily been so directly asked or maybe the the framework hasn't mm. been shared the way you do of mm -hmm. how this may impact someone so what happens next once that question's been offered yeah so uh i'm going to actually say there's a step before asking the question that's okay. important right and that is what have you done uh before you have 
thought about asking that question to educate yourself about the lay of the land or the topic of race. Um, have you had conversations about race with people in your own spheres of life where you're trying to find the terminology, find ways to be empathetic and listen and, and shoulder any of the emotions that comes up in that conversation? Um, because if that's the first time is with a teen or a patient or a client, um, that, that just opens up a lot of room for, for missteps, right? And mm -hmm. so I like to always highlight that first. And then after asking the question, well, I think you can also ask that question differently, right? You mm -hmm. can build in and take assessments, right? Mm -hmm. And say, I will indirectly ask that question, or I will be more direct and say, oh, something's happened in the world. And I just want to check in and see how you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think after that, right, the model that we're going to be talking about today gives a little bit of a framework for how you can then move forward in a sensitive, culturally sensitive and responsive way. Um, and then also making sure that you um, get consent to move forward mm -hmm. in that conversation as well, saying, is this something that you're OK with me continuing to explore? So those are some considerations that I would I would keep in mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really helpful, both for me and ho hopefully for people listening too. is the idea that we can be asking about it without saying, tell me about race related stress in your life. Mm. That there are a bunch of ways that we can ask about this that also incorporate current events, too, that might be impacting them in the, the moment here and now. Absolutely. I think you don't necessarily. I think that's one of the things I've learned is that that with youth, like they. Uh, some are uncomfortable with directly saying or asking about race or asking about uh, your experience in the name of racism, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them are like, oh, I've never experienced that, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas others are a little bit more comfortable with using that language. However, um, you can always find a way of exploring how someone's identity has influenced their day-to-day -day experiences. And mm -hmm. so you may have to find the right language that allows you to be able to assess that. Right. Well, Ryan, yeah, thank you for giving us kind of a broad overview, but we've been talking even at the outset about this reach up model and, and the framework, and I'm eager to, to dig in. Let's do so it. tell me a little bit about the model. Give me a, a sort of a bird's eye view of how this thing works. Absolutely. So um, I want to acknowledge that there are there's been decades worth of work done trying to give us guidelines as to how we can go about honoring the experiences individuals have when they've encountered race-related stress, right? We have standalone interventions that give session-by-session session outlines. However, what the REACH-UP model, which stands for Racial, Ethnic, and Cultural Healing, the Unifying Principles, it really tries to allow for this flexibility. It's for the patient who maybe doesn't want racism centralized across all of their treatment, or maybe they kind of want it to be talked about every now and again as it comes up, or it's for the clinician who just wants to be able to flexibly work it into their treatment plans. And really, like the bird's eye view is it centralizes three principles, empowerment, self-acceptance, and healing. Um, and I, I can talk about that more now, Sam, or or um, I'm sure you, if you have any other questions, you can ask about those. You read my mind. I, I, I definitely want to hear more about it. Yeah, break it down for us, because I, I think we can resonate and understand the words. But it seems like especially having that that insight from your talk too, that there, there's a lot that goes into each of these words. So yeah, I'd love to hear more. Absolutely. So I think empowerment really is a, is a direct commentary on what racism actually tries to do or tries to uh, interfere with, right? So racism is like this social construct that tries to communicate to someone in some shape or form that they're less than or they're inferior, or it tries to disrupt this sense of agency 
solely based upon how your skin, the color of your skin. And so really what in this model, we want to kind of find ways to centralize empowerment. And the ways in which we do that is by um, con constructing this uh, kind of idea of what is the patient's values, what are their goals, mm -hmm. and what are their strengths. And we want to understand this both in the context of them as an individual and also from there for them as a, as a cultural or racial and ethnic individual, and really trying to weave in as many influences on that definition as possible to help the, the youth and the young adult or individual define what that is and communicate that to us. Mm -hmm. And then self-acceptance is really trying to get at how uh, these messages that come from racism can weave its way into the identity and really trying to get into how this person sees themselves, right? So when we look at some of the literature and in the racial, ethnic, and socialization literature, we have these constructs of uh, cultural pride and uh, egalitarianism that really focuses on how individuals develop a sense of love and acceptance and appreciation for themselves. And so um, in order to be able to feel empowered, we want to do that as, an, as a person who is loving themselves and taking pride in themselves. And then lastly, healing is all about acknowledging that um, empowerment happens by way of healing from the emotional impacts from racism, and then also finding ways to feel more efficacious in the environments that you're living in to kind of make steps towards the goals you have. So they, as you may see, like these, these three concepts really interweave, are interwoven mm -hmm. with one another. The ultimate goal is to promote the empowerment of the individual. So we've got the empowerment, which I, you know, I'm already hearing different kind of like theoretical models, in, at least in my brain of like, oh, I can, I can hear where maybe there's a little bit of act or acceptance and commitment therapy of like thinking about our values and trying to be values based in our direction, um, goal oriented behavior too. And I'm also hearing as you talk about the acceptance pieces of like, wow, there's like the pride in oneself and pride in identity the healing of almost, uh, you didn't, I didn't hear this word, but almost like, where do we need to adapt or adopt new kinds of approaches to moving forward? Does that sound right to you? Yeah. I mean, I think the goal, I'm a CBT trained, DBT trained, ACT trained clinician, right? So mm -hmm. the, I get these influences, honestly. And one of the things that I, I appreciate is that racism is so dynamic in its impact on individuals that we as clinicians need to have a lot of tools to be able to, to be responsive to the ways in which it's impacting our patients. And so from a DBT standpoint, I love the dialectical context, right? There's this idea to acknowledge two truths, right? I, I can try to find a way to, to have an I can or a sense of empowerment and at the same time acknowledge that systems need to change and that I should, I, 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 it's not all on my shoulders to try to figure that out. Right. There's that, that dialectic can both be true and we can honor both with interventions as well. And I think from an acceptance and commitment standpoint, right, the values that we have and the ways in which ACT helps us to have compassion towards ourselves as we're enacting those values, that's also something that I think is really fruitful and useful for individuals when they're trying to cope with racial stress. And CBT is at the foundation, right? Thoughts, actions, and emotions and behavioral principles that kind of uh, are the underpinnings of what we do. So I get those influences honestly. And, and lastly, I'll say it's important that clinicians see elements of these interventions so that they can see, oh, I know those things. Those terms right. are familiar to me, right? I don't have to learn a whole new separate intervention to be able to be this culturally responsive clinician right now. And all of those things I think are, are, are really at the heart of this model. 
Yeah, that to me is, speaks to like, ah, this is more accessible than I I thought. Or, you know, maybe my preconceived notions of, oh, wow, like, okay, I can, I can work with this. I can take, I can adapt some of this for, for my practice. And um, so it's really helpful to be able to kind of relate and resonate with some of it. And I appreciate that that's actually part of your thinking as you created it too. I'm also wondering about like a, on a big picture, what this might look like then working with an individual. So they come mm. in, we've got, we talked about some of the demands of the, the clinic and the spaces that you've worked in and are currently working in. And then maybe this is present. Like there is an interest in working on this issue and they want to find empowerment. They want to find acceptance. They want to find healing. Break it down for me. What might this look like over time in working with a client? Absolutely. So within uh, these three principles are then translated into three steps to really uh, try to move this model forward or incorporate it into your care that you provide. So step one is defining what empowerment means, right? This mm. step is really to uh, give clinicians the opportunity to practice cultural humility, right? To be able to say, uh, talk to me or invite that communication of what do you care about? What do you value? What are your goals? Right. And I also like this is step one, because this allows this to be almost trans diagnostic, you know, across different modalities to be able to centralize the patient's goals and values. And then step two is really trying to understand what are the barriers to those to the patient's ability to that they feel are getting in the way of their ability to feel empowered. Mm -hmm. And I um, in the paper, I talk about these barriers can be both non racial or racial stressors. And if the, you have this like intake from your intake, a knowledge that racism has been an experience that your patient has, has encountered, then you may wanna go through some of the way, the barriers that, the ways in which the barriers are broken down in this model. So I'll go over those really briefly. Sure. And so the four ways in which I talk about these barriers, one is through community stress, right? This is a way which we acknowledge systemic racism and the ways in which patients may feel like their communities, their neighborhoods, are um, don't really give the same equitable opportunities and resources to be able to enact some of the goals that they want to achieve. Um, the other, another type of barrier is interpersonal racism, or we call it relational stress, right? The ways in which the, the people in your life who are either different or similar to you may um, create barriers to you being able to live out those values as well. Um, the third one is more internal, right? That's the emotional stress. So we understand that when you encounter race-related stress, sometimes there's an intense, severe, almost at times unexpected emotional intensity that you can encounter or experience. And sometimes that makes it hard to feel empowered and live out those values. So how can we as clinicians be responsive to that need? And then lastly, in this model is identity-related stress. This is when we see kind of some of that internalized stigma or racism or some of these I can't thoughts or assumptions that people are going to see you in a certain type of negative way. So this is also another thing that can get in the way of you maybe making efforts to live out some of the values that you have. And so mm -hmm. collectively, we can identify what those what those barriers are. And then that then informs how we adapt our treatment plans to help our patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you work through this reach up model, and as you go through these steps, as someone feels like let's say they're, they're finding more healing. What do you notice starts to happen for them? How do we, I guess that what I'm thinking about is that like process and outcome stuff that we as psychologists mm -hmm. sometimes think about, like what starts to happen? 
Yeah, I think it's it depends on the the barriers that are that are identified. I think the the, the goals or the the outcomes that we look for shift, right? So mm-hmm. if somebody is experiencing more emotional discomfort or distress, then really we want to see how can we help them to regulate, right? Mm-hmm. How can we help them to practice distress tolerance a little bit more? In this model, we call that acute coping. How do we help the individual cope in the moment? Or whenever someone is experiencing emotional distress, I oftentimes hear some like invalidation or uh, minimization of the emotional experience. I'm just being weak. Or I should have just figured out, I, you know, I should have said this or I should have said that. So there's this, mm-hmm. this kind of um, uh, um, almost negate, negating the difficulty of trying to figure out how to navigate race-related stress. And so we also want to help mm-hmm. individuals navigate those negative judgments of themselves. Right. So those create two different goals, right? Distress tolerance, more self-compassion, right? If an individual has more of that identity related stress, then we want to see maybe the promotion of greater self-love and acceptance and compassion towards their identity, maybe helping them to maybe navigate their environment and find more identity affirming experiences that they can engage in. And then lastly, if individuals are really caught up in some of the systems or the relationships that they're in, we want to see maybe they feel more efficacious in navigating those systems while mm-hmm. also acknowledging the, um, the, the, the fact that systems need to change, maybe promoting opportunities for activism so their voices can be heard in that mm-hmm. way as well. So really the barriers that come up for an individual in that moment dictates what treatment goals we might try to collaboratively set with our patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing like a really client-centered, client-focused approach that can kind of be customized to where they're at. And, and maybe that's also reflective of the, the outcomes too, of being able to express that, that statement to that person, to be able to express that new statement to self too sometimes. Um, but even how you relate with systems as well, or speak up and advocate in new ways too. Absolutely. I really appreciate you taking me through that. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just say, I think we need something that allows for the patient to communicate to us exactly what they're looking for. Um, because, you know, when we have a one size fits all, you know, I've had, you know, patients say, well, I can't, I didn't come here for just to talk about race. I didn't mm-hmm. come, I have other things that I want to talk about. I'm more than maybe just my racial identity or these experiences. So how can we right. be responsive to the, what they're looking for? And, and then this model the goal was to offer like a treatment adaptation guide that clinicians could use to be more responsive to that identified need. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And when we talk about your role and, and your workplace, we've been talking a lot about working with youth and adolescents, broadly speaking, makes me think selfishly a little bit about the treatments and, and populations I serve. I, I work with everybody is 18 plus for the most part. The spectrum's pretty wide after that, but it, it, they've got to be officially an adult. And so I'm curious how this might translate or or if you've done some of that translation to the adult population and what maybe changes, what 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 gets adapted when we do that? Yeah, I, I definitely have. And I think um, a couple of things I've noticed. Number one, I think the how you go about defining empowerment uh, is a little different. I think for the younger ages, they're in this process of identity development and really trying to understand who they are. And so I think of defining empowerment is a part of that process, right? And so sometimes you're coming alongside a, a teen at a time where they're still figuring that out. So there may be a lot more um, variability and shifts in the treatment process as to what that definition is versus when you're working with somebody who's a little bit older 
that definition may be a lot more solidified and there may be a lot more lived experiences that they can draw upon to say, this is, yeah, this is exactly what I, I believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, there's also sometimes within the barriers step within this, there's um, a lot of history. They sometimes get brought up that, you know, rather than doing more psychoeducation about what these barriers look like, you're sometimes doing a lot more listening as to what this these barriers have felt like and been like for the individual. Um, and then I think there's also a greater assessment of the, the coping resources that have already been done over mm-hmm. the course of someone's lifetime as they've gotten older, because um, chances are they've experienced uh, race-related stress uh, a number of times throughout their life. So I think uh, in the younger ages are maybe a little bit more participating in that exploratory process, whereas with the older, there's maybe a lot more listening and humility in the sense of, tell me about your, let, let me use this model to help you tell me about your story and give me a framework for knowing how to hear it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you kind of breaking that down too. It makes me think about future directions in this work. We've got this reach up model that you've written about in the Journal of Health Service Psychology, talked about with us today, and seems like you are very motivated to continue this work. And I'm I'm eager to, to hear more of it. Mm-hmm. I'm eager to be exposed to more of it and potentially use it with my clients too. So what are your hopes as you move forward with this model? Where does it go from here? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really interested in um, using this model as a framework to really promote culturally responsive care and to provide a framework for clinics whether it's in hospital settings, group practice settings, or otherwise, for how they can create uh, culturally responsive care models for patients of color. And so that's actually where, where, where what I hope to do and accomplish at the Ross Center is kind of start to establish a framework for how to create a specialty clinic where reach the reach-up model is the underpinning model for adapting evidence-based interventions to be culturally responsive for individuals who are racial minorities, but also have other marginalized identities. Because I see that there's a lot of intersectionality that happens that can cause, that can be the source of stress, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other piece is, you know, disseminate in dissemination is helping clinicians have tools that they, that, you know, really can easily implement in their work. And so mm-hmm. I'm in the process of, of uh, publishing a workbook that once clinicians go through identifying what empowerment is and and identifying the barriers that has a collection of experiential exercises that uh, teenagers and young adults and adults can use to kind of in therapy or or by themselves to be able to um, understand how to accentuate their sense of empowerment while living out, while acknowledging the barriers that may be in their day-to-day life. So Mm -hmm. really that's it for me is really how can I be a part of disseminating this work and and helping individuals know what, what culturally responsive care can look like. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like that workbook, and I'm I'm actually really thrilled to hear about it. The workbook will be kind of geared towards clients as a, a self-help option, but it would also be helpful for clinicians as they think about using this in their treatment planning. Absolutely. So, you know, when if there if you get through the model and there, there's a bit of an assumption in the paper that was published that that once you get through the model that you may naturally have this idea of, oh, this is how I can adapt an intervention to, mm-hmm. to kind of help my patient in this way. But if there's a block or you kind of want some ideas, the workbook is uh, intended to be a resource to, to kind of spark that creativity to be able to be responsive for your patients in the ways that they've been indicated that they would like for you to. 
Okay. Well, Ryan, I cannot wait for that thing to get published. You better keep me posted. I'll, I'll be eager to, to be using it for myself too. Um, thank you so much, Ryan, for being here with us today and sharing your experience and breaking down the reach up model. I am so excited to see what you, what you accomplish at the Ross Center and to see how this develops. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Where can people find more of this work and eventually where that, that workbook goes? You know, Where can people follow your work? Uh, so I am on Twitter at, at uh, Dr. DeLapp, uh, PhD. Uh, I am also uh, on LinkedIn. Um, you can search my name, Ryan C.T. DeLapp, PhD. Um, and then eventually I my work will be also advertised on the Ross Center's website. Um, and those are the three three ways that people can, and can follow uh, me at this moment. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. I'm Dr. Samuel Lestgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education.